MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, May 26, 2021. Today, the Manhattan District Attorney impanels a special grand jury to weigh indictments in the Trump investigation. Merrick Garland releases part of the Bill Barr memo and the entire Judge Jackson opinion. McGahn will testify before the House Judiciary next week. A poorly redacted court filing reveals names in the federal investigation into Rudy Giuliani. And Biden's job approval reaches 62 percent. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Holy news day, Dana. <laughs> Left and right. Everything's breaking, people. Everything's breaking. I want everyone to remember. I know this comes out on May 26th, but I want everybody to remember May 25th, 2021 as the worst day ever. Donald Trump and the Trump Organization and his adult children and Alan <laughs> Weisselberg and Rudy Giuliani. It is such a crazy, crazy news day. So much breaking news. I've had a moment to digest what Merrick Garland has released and what he didn't release with regards to the bar memo. I'll be talking to a former U.S. attorney and professor of law at University of Michigan Law School, Barb McQuaid, later about potential obstruction of justice charges against the former guy. We have massive breaking news about the grand jury being impaneled by the Manhattan District Attorney. New info on Rudy. Before we get to all this, though, I didn't even know where to put this in the show, but I want to report a new poll from Harvard shows Biden's approval rating has had a growth spurt. It's up to 62 percent. I and I have to look at like history, but that has to be in the higher of almost any president, you know, we've had. That is a massive number. Yeah, it's huge. Uh, we just today reached the milestone that 50 percent of American adults are vaccinated. That exceeds my expectations. I thought for sure the half of, you know, at least half of Americans would not want to. But, uh, you know, it just it goes to show when you give away a beer and have a lottery, people get their <laughs> shot. Uh, well, there is so much to get to today. So let's kick it off with hot notes. Hot notes. Okay, now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the lead story today has to be the bar memo. Oh, no. But wait, this afternoon, something bigger dropped in the Washington Post. (laughs) I cannot emphasize how huge this is. Here it is from the Washington Post. Farenthold says Manhattan's district attorney has convened the grand jury that is expected to decide whether to indict the former guy, other executives at his company or the business itself. Should prosecutors present the panel with criminal charges, according to two people familiar with the development? The panel was convened recently and will sit three days a week for the next six months. It is likely to hear several matters. So when you hear six months, don't think it could take the entire six months just to hear the Trump case. It could hear several matters during the duration of its term, which is longer than a traditional New York state grand jury assignment. Like others, these people who are, you know, divulging this information to the Post spoke on the condition of anonymity. Generally, special grand juries such as this one are convened to participate in long-term matters rather than to hear evidence of crimes charged routinely. The move indicates that Cy Vance and his investigation of the former guy and his businesses has reached a very advanced stage after more than two years. It suggests, too, that Vance believes he has found evidence of a crime, if not by Trump, then by someone potentially close to him or by his company. 
I think uh, I think we're, you know, Ellen Weiselberg is <laughs> it's actually a good name to cough. It really is. Weiselberg. Uh, Vance's investigation is expansive. His investigators are scrutinizing Trump's business practices before he was president including whether the value of specific properties in the Trump's organization real estate portfolio were manipulated. They were. In a way to, yeah, we know. <laughs> in a way, Mary Trump's like sitting on boxes of evidence going, yep. Yep. Uh, insurance fraud, bank fraud, tax fraud. Uh, anyway, all kinds of things. We know the grand giant scope of this investigation. He's got almost 500 LLCs associated with the Trump organization that he controls. The district attorney is also examining the compensation provided to organization executives. That's Weiselberg, a spokesman for Trump and an attorney for the Trump organization. Oh, and by the way, other Trump organization executives compensation provided to. How about those uh, those consulting fees for Ivanka? Remember? Oh, yeah. Mm. Yep. She's on that payroll. Four reels over like three quarters of a million dollars in consulting fees for a company she already works for. Okay. A spokesman for that's called hiding your taxes. <laughs> uh, a spokesman for Trump and an attorney for the Trump org did not respond to requests for comment. I'm shocked. The former guy adamantly and repeatedly did not denies wrongdoing, derides the investigation, witch hunt. While extended length grand juries like the one selected to hear evidence in the DA's investigation can hear cases out of order and to varying levels of completion. Quote, it is likely that the Trump related testimony in the secret proceeding has already begun. Dun, dun, dun. Great story to kick us off today. This next one, also good. New York federal prosecutors investigating Rudy Giuliani have seized material from a wider array of individuals than previously disclosed, including messages from email and iCloud accounts they believe belong to two former Ukrainian government officials, as well as cell phone and iPad of a pro-Trump Ukrainian businessman. This is according to a court document unsealed Tuesday. The court filing, which contained redacted portions that CNN was able to read by copying and pasting them (laughs) into another document. I mean, just the (laughs) the low level of security on these things. What happened here? Because this happened to Manafort, too. Oh, uh, and I think you'll you'll talk about this. But the lawyer for Parnas, uh, I guess to redact his thing, he just went into the Word document and highlighted what he wanted to redact with the black as a color. <laughs> I feel like which, go ahead. Which, which if you don't PDF it up, you can just copy and paste and take the highlights away. I feel like at this point they could walk in, grab the notebook, take a pencil and lightly go across the page that's on top and realize there's a <laughs> message below. Yeah. Oh, my God. So the court filing also disclosed that federal prosecutors have historical and perspective cell site information related to to Giuliani and another lawyer, Victoria Tonsing, Hmm. both of whom were the subjects of search warrants executed last month. So the Ukrainians include the former prosecutor general of the Ukraine, uh, Yuri Lutsenko. And I love Alison Gill because she actually gave me a phonetic spelling, everyone. She thought... (laughs) I was going to mispronounce Yuri Lutsenko and phonetically spelled it out for me. I love you very much, my friend. Now, as you know, that's the former... Trying to be helpful. That's the former head of the Ukrainian Fiscal Service, Roman um, Nasorov. Maybe you could have given me one for Roman Nasorov on that one. <laughs> well, it's Nazarov. See? <laughs> Nazarov. <laughs> I hope you guys are laughing. Listen, I'm not going to pretend like I know how to pronounce these correctly. I'm learning along with you, although most of you probably know how Nazarov is pronounced. 
and businessman Alexander Levin. Now, the filing. Come on. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) I know Levine has an N on the, an E on the end of it. All right. The filing. That was funny, though. The filing written by uh, an attorney for the indicted former Giuliani ally, Lev Parnas. Nothing? Okay, good. (laughs) Described a chart in which federal prosecutors described the scope of the materials they sought and seized beginning in late 2019 and continuing through earlier this year. The prosecutors had previously indicated that their investigation was expansive and encompassed people beyond Giuliani and taunting. They hadn't publicly identified the other recipients of subpoenas or subjects of search warrants. Whoopsie. They keep doing this accidentally. Whoopsie is correct. (laughs) Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if it was like accidentally on purpose, you know. Oh, I'm sure it is. <laughs> so great. Oh, sorry. Did we do that? Oh, oh I guess we're just going to have to leave him like that. Because that's Joseph Bondi, right? That's Parnas's attorney. I've spoken to the guy at length. You know, he's a he's a very careful guy. And and uh, so it's just interesting. Just very interesting how that how that all uh, revealed itself literally. And now I would like to address what we did get and what we didn't get from Merrick Garland with regards to the Judge Amy Berman Jackson order. And, uh, you know, she's talking about the March 2019 Bill Barr memo. So let me read first off for you the top paragraph of what Merrick Garland's Department of Justice filed late last night. I did stick a little update, Dana, into today's beans, yesterday's beans. But, you know, it was just a very brief discussion. And I've had some time to think about it now. But here's the first paragraph from Merrick Garland's DOJ. We respectfully seek a stay pending appeal of this court's order but only insofar as it requires the release of Section 2 of Document Number 15, also referred to as the March 2019 memo. The government has determined not to appeal this court's decision insofar as it ordered the release of the entirety of the first page of Document Number 15 and Section 1 of Document Number 15. Accordingly, this court's memorandum opinion, that's Judge Jackson's opinion, which discusses those previously redacted portions of the document, may be unsealed in its entirety. So that gives us a bunch of clues here, right? Basically, they're saying we want to stay the release pending appeal because we're going to file an appeal on Section 2. We aren't going to do it for Section 1. And because Section 1 is the only section addressed in Judge Jackson's opinion that we went over very carefully with a fine-tooth comb on Mueller, she wrote with Andy McCabe, because that's the only section... You can unseal your entire opinion, Judge Jackson, because Judge Jackson asked for Garland's position on whether or not she could Mm -hmm. release her opinion in full. And what that says to me is that that's the important part. Absolutely. (laughs) What Merrick Garland is releasing here, section one, the first page and section one, that's the important part. I mean, it's all important. We can learn so much of the memo through this. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's all important, obviously. But what she addresses that she's super pissed about in her opinion is section one, page one. So I'm going to discuss this in a bit with Barb McQuaid. But the important thing to note is that the parts the judge was so upset about have been released. And again, her entire unredacted opinion has been released. It appears that the main problem with the Barr memo was that it was written in tandem and by the same people that drafted Barr's famous four page letter to Congress incorrectly exonerating Trump. And what Merrick Garland has released here proves that Section 1 of the Barr memo cannot have been advisory to Barr's letter to Congress because the same people who wrote the memo simultaneously crafted Barr's letter to Congress. So one can't advise the other if they were put together at the same time. And those people are a guy named Rabbit and then, of course, Rod Rosenstein, a guy named Engel, and then the Paydag, remember, the principal 
Assistant Deputy Attorney General O'Callaghan. So what does this mean? Uh, It means that Barr's Department of Justice conspired to falsely claim the decision not to prosecute was theirs. And then they conspired to mischaracterize the Mueller findings to Congress and the public. And then Barr lied about the contents of that memo to the court when it refused to hand it over in the FOIA case. That's all very big stuff that we've learned from the release Absolutely. of this. Absolutely. And like I said, I'm going to tie. So I know everyone's like, oh, F the DOJ. And they, he's the same as before. And we're never going to get anywhere. But, you know, when you take a minute to read her entirely unredacted opinion, what we got is extremely important. I'm going to talk more about this with Barb McQuaid shortly, and I'll be going over the judge's unredacted opinion line by line on this weekend's episode of Mueller, she wrote. So stay tuned for that. So much. Thank you so much, A.G. Now, Don McGahn, White House counsel under former guy, is expected to testify before a House committee next week. A source familiar with the matter confirmed to NBC News. The interview will be transcribed. Earlier this month, the House Judiciary Committee said that it expected McGahn to respond to questions about the investigation into Russian interference in 2016 election conducted by special counsel Mueller and allegations of obstruction of justice. So the New York Times first reported Monday that McGahn was expected to appear for a closed-door session next week. The House committee, headed by Rep. Nadler, Democrat from New York as we know, announced on May 12th that an agreement for McGahn's testimony had been reached. There was a delay after an attorney for the former guy conveyed that the former president intended to intervene before saying last week that he would not intervene. So this will be really interesting. Yeah. And that was news to me that a Trump lawyer was going to intervene and then they decided not to. And I think it's because McGahn can only testify about what's in the publicly available portions of the Mueller report. And the Mueller report was released by the White House and Department of Justice, Trump and Barr. So when Trump and Barr decided to release the public available portions of the Mueller report, that waives attorney-client privilege. And so he has no claim here. And I think he was told that. So interesting. And that obstruction of justice testimony relates directly to the partial release of the Barr memo. And that's what I'll discuss with former U.S. attorney, University of Michigan School of Law professor Barb McQuaid, right after this. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, Daily Beans listeners, it's AG. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Titan. For far too long, the average investor has been totally neglected and ignored by Wall Street that generally caters to the ultra wealthy. We get the same old generic investment advice like buy index funds. Meanwhile, the super rich get access to premium investment strategies and white glove service. The divide didn't sit well with the creators of Titan, who've introduced a world-class investment manager for the rest of us. Thanks to Titan, now everyday investors can have their capital invested like a world-class firm, all through Titan and its mobile app. Titan's goal is to give you access to the best investment experience in the world, but without the high minimums, lockouts, lockups, performance fees, or anything like that. And their in-house investment team invests your capital using their award-winning strategies, and they deliver daily research updates via the app as well. Titan aims to grow your capital over the long term by identifying the rare species of stocks known as compounders and holding on tight. With Titan, it's like having an elite investment manager in your pocket. Titan manages hundreds of millions of dollars for over 25,000 clients and counting. And Titan was named 2020 Top Investment App of the Year by U.S. News. To get started, just download the Titan app and you can start investing with Titan today and get three months with zero fees by visiting titanvest.com dailybeans. That's three months with zero fees at T-I-T-A-N-V-E-S-T dot com slash daily beans. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I am joined by a former U.S. attorney and law professor at the University of Michigan Law School to help us sort of understand what's going on with this partial release of the March 2019 Bill Barr memo from this particular Department of Justice. Welcome, Barb McQuaid. Barb, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. I am so glad to talk to you because there's so much, uh, you know, I've read the unredacted version now of Judge Jackson's opinion, which Merrick Garland, well, the Department of Justice said you can unseal that. And I've read the first part of the memo that he has released to crew and his sort of arguments about not releasing the second part. And I was sort of wondering what your thoughts were, because Judge Jackson's opinion about why the entire thing should be released seemed very persuasive. And I'm not quite grasping the argument to withhold Section 2 of that document proposed by the Department of Justice. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to defend it, but I can explain it maybe. Um, (laughs) I, I, too, was disappointed. I really expected to see this memo and was very curious to see what the reasoning was behind William Barr's decision. Was there, you know, any legitimate lawful basis or was it uh, you know, as crass politically as it appeared to be on its on its face. But um, what, what they're saying is, you know, when Judge Jackson wrote that scathing opinion last week, uh, I, I expected to see that uh, there was, you know, something really highly explosive here. But I think what the Justice Department is saying is that, and they say it very politely, um, she misunderstood the question that was at issue here. They, t- they, they, they take their lumps for it. They say that their briefing from November, the prior administration, was imprecise and was misleading um, because Judge Jackson assumed that the decision that the deliberative process was w- looking at was whether Trump should be charged with a crime. And what she said is it was clear that that decision had already been made. And so there's nothing pre-decisional about this memo, and therefore it cannot be protected by the deliberative process and must be disclosed. You're being dishonest. What they said today is, um, you're right. If that had been the case, it would have been inappropriate to use the deliberative process privilege for this. But you're mistaken. And that's our fault. It's on us. We were not clear. What the question was, was not whether Trump could be charged with a crime. Everybody agreed from the outset that he could not under DOJ policy. Instead, the question was, should we say out loud that this evidence is sufficient to make out a a charge of obstruction of justice? That is, if we were in a different situation where we didn't preclude charges against a sitting president, would the facts here otherwise be sufficient to make out a charge of obstruction of justice. That was the decision that we were looking at. And this was pre-decisional. This was a deliberative process between advisors and Attorney General William Barr, and therefore it is protected. And so they did agree to give up parts of that memo, kind of the initial part that tees up the question and talks about what they were deciding, but then it it protects the remaining part. And I think the Justice Department views its role as protecting the institution protecting it not only in this instance, where perhaps the more politically expedient thing to do would be to say, here you go, Trump administration, we're we're opening it all up for the world to see. I think they're thinking about the precedential value of this and how this is going to be used against them in the future when they may want to protect things. And this idea of the deliberative process 
Privilege is one that is long recognized. It's designed to encourage candor when people are giving their advice to a decision maker so that he can have that unfettered experience and advice in making his own decision. And I think that's what happened here. Yeah. And in in the part that we can see, they talk about and I know Judge Jackson addressed this in the newly unredacted portions of her opinion. Uh, that what they were considering was actually hypothetical. They said, barring constitutional concerns, presumably M- M- Mueller was saying, hey, we can't even say he was guilty of obstruction of justice because he can't, you know, he won't have the uh, ability to defend himself uh, and face his accusers in a court of law because we can't indict him. So, you know, the Judge Jackson was like, well, you're, you know, you're just hypothetically and that you can't really use the deliberative process for that, not to mention the fact that they seem to be deciding whether or not Barr is able to make that call because yeah. Mueller didn't. Yeah. And I think this is where, you know, Mueller is someone who uh, exercises restraint to a fault. Mm-hmm. I think he was a little bit po- politically naive here. He left the door open just a smidge and William Barr drove a truck through it because, you know, he he used this incredibly careful language in his report to say, you know, here's all this evidence. And. Um, we're not going to say that this would be enough to charge Trump because we don't think it's fair when he can't defend himself in court to say he committed a crime, but we're also not exonerating him. (laughs) And what we're going to do is because we can't charge him, we're going to leave this to future prosecutors to decide what to do with it. Um, we wanted to conduct this investigation while, uh, the evidence was available while memories were fresh and documents were available. Um, but we don't think it's appropriate to we can't file charges. So we don't think it's appropriate to even say we should file charges. And we're just going to leave this on a shelf here for others to say. What I think is important and might give people some hope is even though this uh, letter memo may not be become public, uh, there really we really are now at that moment that Robert Mueller anticipated, which is when President Trump is no longer in office. And here's all this evidence of obstruction of justice. Um, and it's very strong. And so now that we have new decision makers, they should look at it and decide whether to file charges of obstruction of justice against Donald Trump. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about next, because we know that McGahn and the House Judiciary Dems have come to an agreement that he will testify mm-hmm. uh, behind closed doors and then seven days to look at the at the transcript. Then they'll release it. And he's he's only supposed to answer questions about publicly available portions of the Mueller report, presumably so that Trump can't come in and claim executive privilege because Trump ag- agreed to release the publicly available portions of the Mueller report, uh, which sort of waves executive privilege there. But if a criminal referral were made based on McGahn's testimony to the Department of Justice, then we're weighing what Mueller teed up here by not saying back then that that Trump committed obstruction of justice, giving Trump perhaps something to appeal on were he charged after he left office. I think it's important to kind of see that timing because apparently McGahn is going to do this testimony next Wednesday. So that could tee up the Department of Justice to make that prosecutorial decision. Uh, Yes, I think that could create some urgency for the question, but they don't even need that testimony. There's nothing to stop them from making that decision now. As long as the statute of limitations has not expired, and it hasn't, this conduct occurred in 2017 and it lasts for five years. So they've got until 2022 to make a decision. You know, having read that report, uh, as you have, AG, several times, um, it seems clear to me that there is very strong evidence of uh, obstruction of justice. You know, the question is 
whether the evidence is sufficient to make it probable that you could obtain and sustain a conviction. And with at least, uh, I'll just focus on the strongest episode. You know, there are about 10 episodes in there. I don't know if I would charge all 10, but there were several of them that struck me as quite strong. And the strongest of them are the ones that relate to Don McGahn, which is um, asking McGahn to fire Robert Mueller to stop his investigation, and then asking him to write a memo that would deny that fact. Uh, you know, there's, there's, to me, nothing that you could use to justify that request. And that strikes me as obstruction of justice. Now, of course, that's not the end of the inquiry. When a prosecutor decides to bring a case, it isn't just, can we charge this based on the evidence? There's the harder question of, should we charge this based on all the equities? They don't charge every case that comes down the pike. They they decide which cases um, have a substantial federal interest and would advance the cause of justice. Um, that's one, I suppose, that Merrick Garland will have to decide. You know, on the one hand, um, is this an egregious abuse of power that should be uh, charged so that President Trump can be held accountable? I-, I would fall into that camp. But I suppose one could also argue that we don't want to be the kind of country where every time a president vacates the office, his successor uh, scours everything he did and looks for ways to charge him with crimes. Uh, I don't think we want to become that kind of country. But I also don't think that's what this is. I think that this is an egregious abuse of power. And I think until there is an accounting, we may continue to see others engage in this behavior. You know, deterrence is such an important part of criminal prosecution. Yeah, I think accountability is probably the first step toward restoring our faith in in the Department mm-hmm. of Justice. But we'll see. We'll see how they handle it. And there may be, like you said, other mitigating factors that might determine whether or not Merrick Garland goes after that. And I want to ask you about that. But I have to take a quick break. Will you stay with me? You bet. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and the following segment of The Beans is brought to you by Policy Genius. Summer is approaching fast, and we should enjoy it without a looming to-do list. Get it all off your plate, and Policy Genius makes it easy to get life insurance done and done right. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. You can save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. That is like $1,300 or more per year on life insurance saved by using Policy Genius to compare rates. The licensed experts of Policy Genius work for you. They don't work for the insurance companies, so there's no pushy salespeople, and you can trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius a five-star rating across thousands of reviews on Trustpilot and Google. Getting started is easy. First, head to policygenius.com. In just minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need, and you can compare personalized quotes to find your best price. When you're ready to apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and scheduling for free. Policy Genius never sells your information to other companies and they never add on extra fees. So head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Everybody, welcome back. We're talking to former U.S. attorney and law professor at University of Michigan Law School, Barb McQuaid. Before the break, we were talking about the bar memo and, and considerations about potentially, you know, Merrick Garland potentially charging uh, the former guy with obstruction of justice based on McGann testimony, which he doesn't really need, but might provide a little political cover. Who knows why they came to that agreement, but it seemed important. And what I wanted to ask you is because you were you were talking about there, you know, there's should we charge, not just can we charge, but should we charge? And right now, breaking right now uh, is in The Washington Post, uh, Cy Vance, Manhattan District Attorney, who just joined forces with New York Attorney General Tish James, has impaneled a special grand jury, a six month long grand jury to sit three days a week presumably uh, for the Trump investigation uh, and, and sources close to this investigation says, you know, there was I think there was a 
criminal division uh, guy from the Manhattan DA that says they're already, I think, going over the Trump investigation stuff. But that's to weigh charges, weigh whether or not the Manhattan district attorney is going to file charge a charge or charges against either the organization or people high up in the organization or Trump himself. Could the fact that this investigation has gone on for so long and is so complex and there's so much evidence, could that sort of inform Merrick Garland as to whether or not he'll prosecute this? Because maybe it's like, well, they're getting him in Manhattan, so we don't need to get him federally. Is that ever a consideration? Um, It is a consideration when it involves the same charges. In fact, there's a policy at the Department of Justice called the Petite Policy, named after a case that says if someone is charged and convicted in the state court, ordinarily the feds will stand down uh, so as not to kind of pile on unless there is some substantial federal interest that has gone unvindicated. And so here, um, you, you know, the cases that we're talking about are in the New York case, these financial matters occurring by businessman Donald Trump before he arrived in office. And so uh, it seems that those would be very independent of the kinds of things that Merrick Garland might be looking at uh, regarding, say, obstruction of justice in Robert Mueller's investigation, which occurred while Donald Trump was president in Washington, D.C. So those strike me as apples and oranges. And so I don't think that even if there should be criminal charges in New York, that would in any way influence the decision of Merrick Garland in the federal charges for obstruction of justice. Yeah, because my feeling is that, you know, if, if Garland doesn't go after Trump, regardless of what happens in Manhattan, it sort of sends a message that that a president can obstruct justice and get away with it. Yeah. And I think that's a really important part of it. Um, you know, as we talked about before, p- punishment is one part of criminal justice. But another really important part of it is deterrence. And it does shape the way people behave in the future. If people feel like they can get away with certain things, it sets a precedent. You know, if you can say, well, Donald Trump got away with it, how can you then turn around and charge so and so? Um, it also, uh, you know, sets the boundaries of what is acceptable behavior. And so I, I think for that deterrence purpose, it's really important to seriously consider filing charges relating to obstruction of justice so that it doesn't become part of the norm of how presidents are expected to behave. Yeah, I I, I agree. And I'm also at like you, I'm disappointed that the entire Bill Barr memo wasn't released by the Department of Justice. And, I, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around the argument, the deliberative process argument. But I don't know what's behind those redaction bars in Section 2. I'm assuming it's it's all the explanations as to why they decided that none of what is outlined in Volume 2 of the Mueller report rises to the, the criminal level of obstruction of justice. Yeah, but I'll tell you, it, it really does matter in some ways. One thing I was curious about is, was their decision based solely on the facts? That is, you know, that they didn't think the evidence was sound or that it wasn't enough to show criminal intent, you know, the corrupt intent necessary, which is, I think, what most people would assume. Um, or was it instead based on William Barr's extreme view of executive power? Remember, he wrote that goofy memo in the summer <laughs> of 2018 before he became the attorney general Yeah, that attacked even before Robert Mueller reached a conclusion It attacked him not on this other basis that a sitting president can never be charged with a crime, but this other thing that said a sitting president can never obstruct justice because the president is ultimately the the boss of the Justice Department. And so he he gets to call the shots and he can tell him what to investigate and what not to investigate. And so I've often wondered whether William Barr's analysis was based on the facts they found here 
or on that crazy theory, because if it's on the crazy theory, then um, it seems like a no brainer to go ahead and file charges now. If it's instead based on their assessment of, you know, some factual irregularities or facts about you know, not amounting to corrupt intent or something, then that's a harder call to reverse. Yeah, true. And what we've uncovered here in, in her, in Judge Jackson's opinion, and in that first page and a half of, of the of the original memo is that, you know, there seemed to be uh, they were simultaneously working on the letter to Congress for Barr and the memo and try to put it all together. And it was these four or five people in the Department of Justice, O'Callaghan, I think, and Rabbit and Engel and Barr and Rosenstein. And they sort of were also talking and discussing how this would be publicly announced and publicly taken. And it just seemed excruciatingly political. So I think what we got, what was released is is entirely damning. I mean, it just proves what we all sort of suspected when Barr rolled out his findings uh, on the Mueller investigation. Well, I agree. In fact, I think that um, the, the tone of Judge Jackson's opinion suggests that she was deeply troubled by it. And so um, I, I think your conclusions um, have merit in light of her reaction to it. And, and, you know, she's had the chance to read it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like I feel like we got to see what she was super upset about, <laughs> um, which is is kind of the important part of it, I, I believe. But uh, I appreciate your time today. I'm also disappointed. Like I said, I hope we get obstruction of justice charges and they go forward with the grand jury decisions in, in Manhattan and New York Attorney General's office. Mm -hmm. We've also got the Georgia investigation. I mean, we're, we're talking about a man who's in deep legal trouble uh, from multiple sides. I don't see him walking away free and clear from everything. Yeah. Well, uh, time will tell. Yeah, time will tell. I appreciate your time today. Everybody, you got to follow Barb McQuaid on Twitter. I really appreciate your time. Former U.S. Attorney law professor at University of Michigan Law School, which is a wonderful, beautiful school. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, everybody, it's AG. And you know, I love a good glass of wine, but shopping for it can be a pain. There's so many choices, but salespeople don't know much. But thankfully, there is First Leaf. They have saved me. It's a better way to discover wine at a fraction of the price you'll find in the store. First Leaf is a fully customizable wine club that sends curated boxes of wine that are perfect for you. And they have more award-winning wines than anyone else. With First Leaf, there is no guesswork for you. There is no misguided recommendations from employees who don't know what you like, not trying to have to explain it to them. And there's no frustration on your part. Each wine shipment is entirely customized to your unique palate and preferences. And unlike big box wine memberships, First Leaf uses a one-of-a-kind algorithm and your feedback to curate future wine recommendations. The more wines you taste and review, the better the shipments get. I love their system of rating different wines. I give specific preferences based on my personal taste, and each shipment has improved more and more ever since as I dial in exactly what I like the most. And the great thing, First Leaf works directly with the best winemakers, not only to find the best wines, but to pass the savings on to you. You can save up to 60% off retail by eliminating the middleman. I love the convenience of First Leaf, and it's exciting to do the unboxings and then the tastings. I love how flexible their subscription system is. It's up to me when I get wines, when I get them, pause, restart, how often. I usually prefer dry reds, but sometimes I get a mix for variety. And I've gotten a few favorites so far, but I love trying new wines for the first time, too. So if you love wine like I do, I highly recommend trying First Leaf. You can save time and money and stress. It is the wine club designed with you in mind. Join today and you'll get six bottles of wine for just $29.95 and free shipping. Just go to tryfirstleaf.com slash dailybeans. That is six bottles of wine for $29.95 and free shipping at tryfirstleaf.com slash dailybeans. 
And today's episode is also brought to you by Plush Care. We all avoid doing things we dread, uh, putting things off until later. I'm a procrastinator, especially with doctors. But you shouldn't be. You need to get your health checked. So Plush Care is here for you. They make it super easy to schedule an appointment and see a doctor. I can do it from home and I can prioritize my health hassle-free. Plush Care provides virtual doctor appointments through your smartphone or your computer. I just pick a time that works and book it online with a couple of clicks. I don't have to sit on hold forever. I don't have to go to a crowded, germy waiting room. It's awesome. And with Plush Care, I can be diagnosed, treated, and have prescriptions sent to my pharmacy of choice if needed within minutes. Plush Care accepts most major insurance carriers, and it's available in all 50 states. And the providers care. They're here to help by discussing treatment options and providing prescriptions. And they're available anytime I have questions. And if you're having difficulty managing your emotions and your stress and your anxiety, Plush Care doctors are available to help with that, too. You can schedule an appointment today to discuss your treatment options. I have found using Plush Care to be a very pleasant experience. I love my provider. It was easy to sign up, easy to schedule an appointment, very convenient, right from home. And I felt immediately comfortable and confident. To me, the most important thing is our health. So it's wonderful how simple Plush Care has made it to put my health first. Plush Care makes it easier than ever to take care of yourself inside and out. So start your membership today. Go to plushcare.com slash dailybeans to start your free 30-day trial. That's P-L-U-S-H-C-A-R-E.com slash dailybeans for a free 30-day trial. plushcare.com slash dailybeans. You'll be glad you did. All right, everybody. Welcome back for the good news. Well, we're blown on good news. is on the way. I don't know if we could possibly get more good news today, but y'all submitted a bunch of good news. So we are going to read it and thank you for submitting it. And if you have anything you want to submit, whether it's uh, good news, confessions, corrections, uh, what the mutt, find the cat, favorite swears. What is it? Where's the swear? <laughs> swear where's the swear? And <laughs> I've misheard new, new cats. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, if you want to submit anything, you just do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. We would love to hear from you because what better way to pile on a bunch of good news with a whole bunch more good news? I'm going to kick us off with a, a submission here from Dana. She, her. Is this you? Not me. Okay. Not really any of the above, more of an amicus brief regarding the Tulsa race massacre. I grew up in Oklahoma, educated through the public school system, a local two-year college in the University of Oklahoma. Never, not once, did we learn in our history classes about the Tulsa race massacre. And we had two full years of required Oklahoma history. Don't you think that's something that they should have been covering in Oklahoma history? That's just more proof of the whitewashing of history to suit white supremacy. Added to that, we were never taught in world history about the Holocaust. What? I was doing research in a public library on another topic, and I found an old article about the Holocaust. I fell down the rabbit hole, found every book I could about the topic, checked them out. I think there were 23 that they allowed me to take out at a time. And the next day, I went to my vice principal's office with my trove of books on the subjects and confronted him. He was allegedly in charge of curriculum. He told me that children don't need to know about such things. I remember so clearly saying to him, if we aren't taught about this in an early age, if you continue to push this under the rug, we will be doomed to repeat it. The only reason I didn't get suspended for insubordination, a favorite of his when anyone sassed him, was because I was too frustrated to carry on and I left. I went straight to the history teacher who just looked at me in the eye and said, I've already heard and we're not going to discuss it further. I'm so sorry I didn't raise this issue anymore. Being young female and in Oklahoma, where I was taught women should not hold strong opinions about things, both in my home and in my social circles. So I didn't raise the issue. But going back to the Tulsa race massacre, it was on Facebook about five to six years ago that I first heard about it. 
and I got so angry, I went back to Oklahoma to resurrect the body of my now-dead vice principal and confronted him about that. In my advanced years, I've become more vocal and I don't let things slide anymore, and I'm thrilled to see so many younger people in their teens and 20s getting fired up and making the changes we see in the world. Wow. I just wanted a little, just because it was a hiccup in there, I just want to make it clear that she wanted to go resurrect the body oh. of her now dead vice principal. Uh, yeah, I thought she him. did. That didn't actually happen. I don't want this person to have a knock on the door. Um, <laughs> so she wanted to, and I can understand why I would have been furious. Wow. And you know what? They were talking about this now with, um, and I won't call it the race theory uh, because we know that it's not a theory. There's a lot of provable facts in there. In fact, all of them are, but there was a quote that said, you know, if you think our kids are too young to learn about race. No, our kids are not too young to learn about racism if they're if they're young enough to experience it, basically. I know I butchered yeah. that quote, but that's the right. bottom line. If our yeah, if our kids are young enough to experience racism, they're they're old enough to learn about it. There we go. Yeah, exactly. hundred percent. hundred percent. Get a little tongue tied. Thank you for sharing this. The, the Oklahoma history didn't teach it. Wow. All right, AG, thank you so much. This next one's from anonymous pronouns she and her. My daughter was discharged from speech therapy this week. She was about 18 months old when the first coat, maybe I need to go to her therapist. We can leave that one in there because this is a good news story. We might as well leave that one in there. If we can both stop laughing. Okay. She was about 18. I got really hot just now. I think I had a hot flash. Okay. She was about 18 months old when we, when the first COVID lockdowns hit and I stopped being able to take her out with me to run errands and see family. Her language development hit a wall and it took several months and a pediatrician changed before I could get her evaluated for a language delay. She started speech therapy virtually around Thanksgiving. And after less than six months, she's more than caught up to where she should be for her age. Oh, awesome. This more than anything makes me feel like there's a light at the end of the pandemic tunnel. Now we're just waiting on Pfizer vaccine to get approved for her age group. With luck, she'll be fully vaccinated around her third birthday. Thank you for all you do. That is so great. Yeah. Two to 11 year olds are expected end of summer, early fall to be yeah. approved. All right. Next up from Chalice. Rhymes with palace. Pronouns she and her. Hello, ladies of the Leguminati. Good news. For the first time in 15 months, we were able to have our gaming group over to our house and actually play. Our group has been getting together for our monthly RPG sessions for over six years. Once everybody was fully vaccinated, we were able to get back together. There were snacks, alcohol, cheesy jokes. A good time was had by all. For pet tax, I submit my old sweet lady Pearl. Her and her brother Jade were wedding presents from our wedding photographers 18 years ago. Sadly, we had to say goodbye to Jade a few years ago, but she is still with us. Her kidneys are no longer what they used to be, and she mostly sleeps all day, but she still has the energy to yell at us when it's time for either food or loves. Thank you for all your hard work with these wild times. Look at this baby. Oh, goodness. Oh, so cute. So cute indeed. All right. This next one is short, but it's wonderful. This is from Danielle, pronoun she and her baby bean update, eight weeks, three days, and we are starting to grow appendages. Since I started this journey with y'all, I decided I'm going to keep sending in updates until you get sick of us. It's not going to happen, Danielle. Look at that sweet picture. Oh my gosh. I love these ultrasound photos. I feel like I need to put it on my fridge. That's what you do with ultrasound photos, right? (laughs) Could you imagine people walk in and be like, whose baby is that? It's just a friend. Yep, Danielle. Yeah, duh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean, whose? You want to take the next one because that one was so short? 
Sure, this one's from Maria, pronouns she and they. Hello all, this is uh, one of those good news stories that starts off pretty bad, so hang on, trust me, it will get better in the end. 2020 was much of a hellscape for me, as for the rest of the world. The pandemic hit my bipolar brain harder than I thought it would, and I had a really bad time mental health-wise. I live alone, and even though I'm an introvert, things got very lonely on top of everything else. I've been off work sick this whole time. Luckily, I live in Denmark, so I don't have to worry about not having an income, medical bills, or other stuff like that. It's fantastic. I've been wanting to get a furry roommate for a long time, and I decided now is a good time as any. So I went to the shelter to maybe find a new feline friend. When I got there, this tiny tortoise shell girl came right up to me, climbed up on my shoulder. When I got the carrier out, she went right in, never looked back. She had been born at the shelter, had lived there her entire 10 months of life. Her mother and siblings had been adopted out long ago. She was all of five pounds. She settled right into my, at my apartment, but she did shows quite worrying signs. She vomited every day. She was very skinny, very small for her age. She also didn't know how to jump, only climb. At the shelter, she lived in a one room. She lived in one room with lots of other bigger cats and apparently was never allowed on the shelves and so never figured out how to jump. The vet ran tests, more tests, and eventually came to the conclusion that she was an autoimmune digestive disease. She would have died from malnutrition with no intervention. She gets very special food and medicine every day, and that keeps it manageable. She's now a respectable eight pounds and turns two on June 1st. Mm. Meanwhile, my grandmother, who was more like a mother to me, gets ill and dies after a week in the hospital. Her death was rather traumatizing but I will spare you the details, not COVID related. Suffice to say that two nurses needed trauma counseling. I sat with her the whole time. I was there when she passed. The next day I tested positive for COVID. I had a mild case, but lost my sense of taste and smell completely for four months. And my smell is still not hundred percent six months on. So what's the good news? Well, you know, my new furry roommate, she lets me know that when it's time to get up, time to go to bed, go for a walk, eat, and most importantly, snuggle on the couch. We do everything together, even take our meds at the same time. She can now Mm. jump high in the air, understand several commands, and walk on a leash. If I don't go to bed when she feels like it's the right time, she'll climb on me and aggressively fall asleep on me. (laughs) She will not sleep on my lap. She insists on being held so she can squish her face to my face. At night, she sleeps in the crook of my arm, and she wakes me at 6.30 exactly by licking my nose. Bottom line, sometimes good news comes in small packages like a five-pound cat who likes to sleep on your face. (laughs) Here are some pictures of Victoria, the cat that I was supposed to save, but instead saved me. That was such a beautifully written story. And look Look at at that third picture. What a gorgeous kitty. Okay. I'm okay. Uh, I have something in my eye. Thank you for that really incredible submission and this beautiful little baby girl. Oh, amazing. All right. Last up, finally, from anonymous teacher, pronoun she and her. Good news. Only 16 more alarming wake ups, 16 more grueling days on Zoom, 16 more lipstick stained coffee cups, 16 more days in the three foot apart classroom. Almost done with PLCs and SSTs, staff meetings and those ever loving IEPs. Repeating myself over and over will soon be no more when I ecstatically run out of my classroom door. Summer relaxation will soon be here. And even though I hold my students very dear, I cannot fucking wait. (laughs) That was brought to you by Poems from a Teacher. 
That's so fantastic. It was uh, Alice Cooper, right? School's so out for, forever. School's wow. out for summer. My favorite shit is like, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, right? Well, I spent a lot of time there and, and he lives there. He's got a house there. And every once in a while, because I was a golfer, I, I'd be out on the golf course and I would see Alice Cooper out on the golf course. And so here's Alice Cooper with the hair, oh you know, but he's wearing golf clothes and he's golfing oh my god it was just the coolest weirdest juxtaposition of anything you've ever seen in your whole life that's <laughs> like, hysterical Alice Cooper out. he didn't have his makeup on I wish he would have put it on to go golfing but that would have been amazing do you still play no no that was something my dad and I did and oh, okay. you know since dad's no longer with us I just I haven't been and now I'm now it's sort of like it's been so long it's like ugh. You know, it's been 30 years. It's like, I can't go back. Because oh. I was I was so good. Um, You'd be and surprised. That, you could go back if you wanted to. But I understand maybe it's not at the top of your priorities anymore. Yeah. Uh, I just, I kind of want to just ha- have, keep it like a, a me and my dad thing, you know? Oh, that's sweet. Yep. I get it. But, uh, you know, who knows what the future holds? I'm just so excited to get out and get into the summer and go about and do travelings and things. I'm so excited about being vaccinated. And, you know, I will continue to wear a mask. uh, And, you know, the only time I'm not wearing my mask where I used to before is if I'm just outside. Me too. Taking a jog or walking. Yep. I still wear it in all the stores if I go in anywhere. Yep. Yep. Uh, And you don't have to, CDC says. But, you know, I like not being sick. (laughs) <laughs> so it's been real nice. Uh, I appreciate Same. it. Anyway, that's our show. Do you have any final ideas or thoughts before we get out of here? Just my little good news. I've got book club in person for the first time tonight. And so I get to oh. see, not just see the people that have kept me sane through this pandemic, but I get to hug them. And that makes me very happy. So that's my good news for the day. We just finished a book called Diet Land. Wonderful. What's it about? Oh, it's really hard to explain. Uh, oh. It's, <laughs> yep. Can't even right. just sum it up because I'm a little, there's so much in the book. Is it a fictional so novel? This isn't going to make any sense. Yes, it is a fictional ah, gotcha. novel. Yeah. Interesting. I will check it out. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Check it out as well. And thank you so much, everybody who listened to the Bureau. We It's been getting an incredible response. It dropped yesterday, the first premiere episode. And if so if you're into like true crime Ooh. in the, you know, in the depths of the actual FBI, that it's it's pretty amazing uh and i gotta start listening learned so much about like how stuff actually i I, it's i've always been fascinated like ever since i saw silence of the lambs right i've Mm -hmm. always been and even going back to when you learn about serial killers and stuff in school and i've just been always fascinated by behavioral analysis and there's a lot of that and you talk to the people he talks to the people who actually do it it's so great so check it out The Bureau with Frank Figalusi. And I appreciate you all, everybody. Until tomorrow, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill. And I've been Dana Goldberg. And them's The Beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com.